This morning's scripture reading is from the 27th Psalm. You can find this on page 394 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. Again, Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Our truest self is revealed during moments of extremity. King David, uh, who authored this psalm, experienced his share of extremities in his life. In fact, he summarizes these experiences just before some of the psalms, some of his prayers. It's like he's giving the reason why he's praying. So in fact, so Psalm 34, he basically says this. Here's what I pray when I had to pretend that I was certifiably nuts before the king of Gath so he'd release me and let me leave his country. Or Psalm 59, this is what I asked God when King Saul sent a bunch of his cronies to spy on me and wait to kill me when I walked outside my door. Uh, these are the sorts of things that David had inscribed before a number of his psalms to let us know of what he was going through. And we don't know the occasion that precipitated David's prayer here in Psalm 27. But probably pretty extreme. Considering it included evildoers who assail me to, quote, eat up my flesh. Those are probably some bad dudes. When you use language like that, these aren't people, you know, like Tony Soprano or organized crime. People who not just are seeking power or money or fame, but want to dismember David. Thirsty people. But still, listen to how David, in the midst of this, exudes confidence. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 this morning of Psalm 27. So look at that with me again, if you would. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold, or as it says below, the shelter or refuge of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat of my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, look at this confidence, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So using this psalm as our guide, I want to pose this morning the question, how might we display radical confidence during times of extremity? How can we display radical confidence in God during times of extremity? So that's what I want to examine this morning. Because each of us wants to be a little better version of ourselves. Right, no matter where you're at, you probably, especially in times where it is a crucible, where there is trial, where you feel pressed in, those are the times you want to be a better person. So you look back and you wish you were a better version of yourself. I want to tell you about a recent victory for me. It's a victory that God achieved during a moment of extremity. And I do this because I think you know, I think it's fair to say, I share plenty of uh, my weaknesses, struggles, warts, you know, just outright schmuckiness in my life. All right, I'm pretty open with you guys about that. So I want to share, for once, a victory in life, all right? And it is a victory, certainly, that God achieved. And it coincides with our family vacation that I just got back from and promised I would talk a little bit about this week. We had a wonderful holiday, uh, my two boys, my wife and I, and it was a great time. So here's a picture, I'll show you some pictures, a picture of Mason uh, surfing for the first time. We got a picture of uh, Gage here ziplining for the first time. And uh, that was exciting. And of course, I just have a picture of 10 children in an inflatable pool. Which just, frankly, I just thought was disturbing and probably a health hazard. I mean, 10 children in a Walmart inflatable pool held up mostly by duct tape. So uh, it was a great time. And I'll post more of the happy and sappy on my blog later. But for now, I want to describe how the Oschlager adventures this year for us this summer began with this. A little prayer book. A prayer book of prayers, a Puritan prayer book from the 1600s. And I keep this... In the back of my, uh, my laptop bag, this little compartment back here, it fits nicely. Well, um, this book, as you can see, is about the size, a little bit bigger, of a passport. Alright, so, uh, four of these passports were also thrown into these compartments on my laptop bag the morning of July 1st. And... Uh, Having arrived at the check-in line, which is a few minutes to spare, I could not find uh, Katie's passport. All right, so you might see what's coming here. Uh, and I was, I was concerned. I was concerned. <laughs> so, now, I got to, before I say anything else, there are two factors at play. One, I suffer from uh, what is known as domestic blindness. And that is a condition affecting 90% of married men that causes them to be unable to see common household objects that are often right in front of them. All right, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a disease, it's a disorder. We cannot be blamed. I can't see the mayonnaise in front of me, okay? I need to know where it is. Where did you put it? Who stole it? These are the kinds of things that men often say, and I'm among them. All right, but I looked for this passport. Single-minded concentration. But it managed, due to its size and page shape, to wedge itself into the pages of this prayer book. 
Also, there's a second factor at play, and that was uh, Katie, the day before, had taken her passport uh, to get a police clearance. Okay, and uh, I had kind of annoyed her, uh, annoyingly reminded her a few times. You know, don't forget, put it next to the door with the other passports. Don't forget, put it next to So I did this a few times. But we couldn't find it. We were in trouble. And that's when it got interesting. 7 a.m. at the Cayman Airport here. Uh, we see just one person that we know because we have locked the keys into, a, into the car that we borrowed, okay, for that morning. So we can't get into the car. No way home. So we see one person that we know. So the plan is for Katie to beg for a ride while I stall, right? And at worst, we pay for one plane ticket. But the thing is, the one person we see there that we know is also the one person, I debated sharing this, but it's good for a fact, it's the one person since being here that has told me off, has told me off in front of myself and my wife, just told me off, all right? Now as a pastor... I recognize that you can't make everybody happy. And people, for the most part, are very gracious and loving here. But I'll admit, this person said some things that shocked even me. All right, so I'm saying, Katie, run, grab her, right? Our number one fan, go. Well, so in the meantime, I sit there with my boys explaining to the airline representative what's going on. And... You know, I start to be checked in. She checks in the three of us. Now, my tendency at this point is to kind of take control of the situation, right? You know, start to work it, use the Oshlager charm. Hey, say, how are you doing today, Denise? Right? You know, I mean, that kind of thing. And that's my tendency. But, thankfully, this God's Spirit gently nudged me. And this is against my nature, okay? Gently nudged me to just sit down with our two boys, they're six and four years old, and just pray with them. Just pray with them. So I did. It wasn't a big show or anything, but we sat there and we prayed for God's mercy. Just for about a minute. And it was something that our boys would talk about for the rest of our holiday. Now things did not immediately get better as a result of this. In fact, minutes later, the airline lady, kind of out of nowhere... And I'm protecting names and airlines for the innocent, of course. But out of nowhere, she rips up our tickets that she'd already printed out, you know, with the seat assignment and all that. And I just sit there speaking calmly, but when my face is palpitating underneath, right? It's like my face is doing like gymnastics underneath my flesh. But I'm, I'm sort of sitting there saying, well, um, excuse me, why did you do that? Well, she said, well, it's too late. I said, yes, but uh, we mentioned we three will go and my wife's going to get another plane. And she's like, nope, it's too late. And of course, the airline was overbooked by 10 people. So, uh, well, you know, we were good candidates for excommunication from the plane. So the manager comes by to help. And I, yeah, hopefully, I, I really want to pour out my soul to you guys this morning, as you can tell. Uh, I... She agreed, the manager did, that, you know, we should be on the flight. This shouldn't have happened, so she tried to reprint the tickets, but the computer wouldn't let her. And that's when she says, well, the computer won't let you, so it's your fault. I'm like, what? Well, I don't understand. Interesting. I need to um, explore other options at this point, right? Uh, she offered no vouchers, no op- other opportunities, nothing. So at this point, just silently pray, Lord, okay. Please guide me. 
help me, guide me, show me what to do next. So, so I grab Katie's cell phone, my cell phone, get on, get on one with my dad uh, on the West Coast so he can get on the computer and look for other plane tickets, get on one with the 800 number of the airline to try to figure something out. Meanwhile, all this is going on, I've got two phones attached to my ears here, a couple things happen. One, a family who had witnessed the whole thing happen, witnessed me pray with our, our, our boys and witnessed what had gone down, um, Katie had opportunity to kind of witness to them. A second thing that happened, all this was going down, a woman who I'd seen before, but she wasn't dressed like someone who could help. You know what I mean? Like, when you look at these airline people, she looked more like the air traffic controller. She had the, like, you know, reflective vest on. So I was thinking, she's not someone you ask. But she caught a glimpse of my passport. And so out of nowhere, I'm kind of off at this point. I hear, Pastor Ryan. Pastor Ryan. I'm thinking, Lord, <laughs> is it time? <laughs> This is fine. Take me. This is a good moment. <laughs> but I realized it was a human voice at this point, right? And uh, I'm thinking, who here knows I'm a pastor? And this woman says, I, I, I'm not kidding. She said, Pastor Ryan, God has brought me to you today. She says, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I listen to your radio program in the car every Sunday morning. And she said, I don't, I don't even know what this means. I said, you're a hero in my car. And I'm like, man, praise God, we have 10 listeners. That's terrific. You know, but it was like at that moment, it, it, it was such from God, like a light beamed down from heaven, right? And it was like, oh, you know, this woman is, it's clearly from the Lord. And I, it was just amazing, this provision. And she went on to get us tickets for a plane the next day. Everything was booked. She got us tickets on a different airline. Now, I share all this because the sweetest part of this whole morning, and I, and I promised myself there'd be like three sermon illustrations coming out of this experience, but the sweetest part was just finally taking comfort in my father's presence during this extremity. I always wanted to be that kind of person who in moments of extremity pressed in and put my confidence in Christ, but never did. But I also want to strongly convey that it was no accident this happened. It was preparation. It was preparation. Here's what I mean. God had been pressing me to pray like I never prayed before over those previous two weeks leading up to this time. This previous probably month, really. Specifically, the days leading up to our time away was a good time to reflect back on how God had provided for us as a family, had provided for this church, provided you guys, and provided in people's lives over this past 12 months. And his, his word had just been implanted on my heart and my mind more and more that I was thinking about it. It was on my mind. It was alive to me. I don't say this was by my own doing. It was by his grace and mercy this had happened. I'm not saying I'm normally like this or that my tendency is like this. It's not, friends. But God, by his grace, had invaded my life those previous two weeks. And I put in some hard work, too, of praying and seeking him. So this morning... What I want to convey, the sermon in a nutshell, is this. Prepare yourselves for times of extremity that you might become the person you were reborn to be. Now I say reborn because you are not Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, right? Become who you were born to be. You know, there's not some elvish king who's brandishing you a sword, right? If you've trusted your life to Christ, you've been born again. You have a new heart. 
One of the things I love about God and his, and his wisdom is that he gives us all these hints from daily experience that point towards a higher truth. So for instance, if you go diving here or, or snorkeling, you see the wonders of nature, right? But, that, but it also includes lionfish, right? And above the water, it includes things like wasps and poison ivy, right? And so you have beauty that's almost perfect, but not quite, so that it stirs in us a longing for a better world. It stirs us a longing for eternity. So a hint that points towards a greater reality. Or what about children who at an early age aren't taught to say no before they're one? They're not taught to say no, but somehow they learn the word and they rebel and in their hearts they have this big no. It shows that there's something wrong with us. There's a problem. And as we get older, we want to do what is right, but we find that we can't. God is hinting at this thing called sin, this rebellion that's in each of our hearts that we need a remedy for. Or what about the hint, you want to be a better version of yourself, a better human in times of extremity, in times of hardship. That's because if you've trusted Christ, or this morning you want to trust Christ, God is hinting at your destiny. He's hinting at a greater reality for you. Your destiny is to become a better human. It is to become more like the perfect human, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 8.29 points at this destiny. What does it say? It says this, Romans 8.29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, whom he knew would trust Christ, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Your destiny, then, is to become like Christ. To become more like that perfect human in moments of extremity. This doesn't happen overnight. It's a preparation. It is a process. That's why 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul also says this about growing to be more like Christ. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, which happens through prayer, through worship, through times in His Word. We are being transformed in the same image, listen to this, from one degree of glory to another. It doesn't happen overnight. It's one degree of glory to the next, to the next, to the next. God is in the process, friends, of preparing you. He's peeling back those layers of hardness, of mistrust, of deceit, of insecurity, of anger, so that you might become more like the person you were reborn to be. You see that? And you have a part to play in it. You must prepare yourself for extremity. So I want to examine three questions this morning with that, briefly. Three questions. Why don't we already do this? Why don't we already prepare ourselves for this? What does God say about this? And finally, how can we personally and practically prepare ourselves? Why don't we already prepare ourselves? It's important we do a little diagnose, a little diagnosing before we do some prognosing, right? Most of us think either one, hard things may happen to me, but calamity won't happen to me. Right? Like, we hear things happening to people. We, we watch on the television things like Extreme Makeover, where these, these families enduring hardship. We watch CNN, where people are going through terrible things. We pray for a friend who's in trouble, yes, but I won't face that kind of extremity. I just haven't. So I probably won't. 
uh, warning for you, friends, this morning. It's a serious warning. Is beware a life without extremity. Beware that kind of life. God has some things to say about that kind of life. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 17.14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, extremity, because they are not of the world. The disciples are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So if these things aren't happening at some point in your life, if you've gone two years and you don't experience this, you have to start asking yourself, is there a divine quality to my life? Or Jesus points out, and John, does my life look different? Or am I living on my account? Or on Jesus' account. Beware a life without extremity. Because it might tell you something about your relationship with God. The second thing, the other reason I think we don't prepare ourselves for times of extremity, because I think most of us assume we'll be ready for it. We assume, uh, you know, I'll be fine. And I think this arises from the notion that, that we are naturally good. That all things being equal, left to ourselves we will sort of drift towards the godly. We will drift towards what is wise and pure and good. Left to ourselves. I've been reading Proverbs this summer, and Proverbs like rails against this, uh, especially when it comes to raising children. Proverbs 22.15, Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. In other words, how many tragic lives are born out of parents assuming children, assuming that their children will just gravitate towards wise decisions? Like as a parent, I don't really need to do much. My, my child will just, will just gravitate towards it. Where there's no preparation and trial comes, children become adults whose hearts are bound to folly. Whose hearts are drift because they are bound to comfort to control, to the path of least resistance when hardship comes. To reputation when trial comes. Naturally, like the song we sang earlier, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And we know this from the world around us that we're prone to wander. This summer I watched a documentary uh, called The Inside Job. There was a movie, The Inside Job, which chronicles the financial recession that we find that most of the world in. It starts talking about how we got there. And, and it mostly focuses on the United States, admittedly, but it gets into other countries like Iceland. Many of you, especially those of you in the financial sector, uh, believe me, are much more financially savvy than I am. Like, I learned about finance from Monopoly, for the most part. You know, like, here we go. Come on, boardwalk. You guys are much more savvy for many of you, but what I did take away from this documentary, and it was, it was quite good, were two things. One, this thing called derivatives are not something you should base an entire national economy upon. All right? Right? Some of you are shaking your heads like, yes. Secondly is this. When a large Wall Street company, really companies, make habits of buying debt and then turning around and buying insurance against it so that when, when that prospect fails, they can make even more money off of it. 
So they buy something saying it's good, saying to investors it's good. Then they buy insurance so that they know it's going to fail and they make more money off of it. That's what we in the Judeo-Christian world called unethical. And I, I didn't even realize some of like what is going on to drive all of this. And I'm sure some of you will come out first, well, it's not that simple. Maybe not, but it seems like to me that this is the norm. And to discover that this is not only the standard, but legal financial practice of the world we live in and of, of the country that I'm originally from, it makes me want to go to the bathroom, man, and just revisit my breakfast, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, it makes me sick. When I saw this, it reminded me, people, even lawmakers, in the process of making law, left themselves drift away from what is godly, from what is righteous, from what is wise. That's why we don't prepare ourselves. We think, we'll be fine. I'll make wise decisions. What does God say about this? Over and over, he says, prepare, prepare. Get yourself ready. Titus 3.1 says, Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. To reprove, to rebuke, to encourage. Right? In season, out of season. When you don't think it's going to come, when you think it's going to come. But I want to focus here on, on this verse. 1 Peter 3, 14-16. Where Peter says this to a group of suffering churches who are in exile. But even you, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Sounds a lot like David, right? Don't, no fear. Do not be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Or set apart Christ as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Set apart Christ as Lord. So we're to be prepared to share Christ in the midst of hardship. The reason for the hope that we have in the midst of hardship. But this is a unique phrase in the New Testament when Peter says, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And why is it unique? Because Christ is set apart as Lord. That's just another way of saying Christ is holy. He is perfect. That's frequently used in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, used of Yahweh, that he is holy, he is set apart. But what's so unique about this phrase is Peter says, but in your hearts set him apart that way. In other words, objectively, Christ is always set apart. He's always totally different. He's always holy. He's always perfect. But subjectively, there must be this setting apart of Christ in one's own heart. Experientially setting him apart. To really do it in your own life. That's what Peter's saying here. So, to share Christ, to give the reason the hope that we have, we have to first prepare ourselves by putting Christ, setting him aside in our heart personally. How can we do this? How can we practically and personally prepare ourselves for our times of extremity? I think the clues come from our passage this morning. Look at this with me if you would. What's the first thing that David does? What's the first thing he does? He reminds himself in the midst of this extremity of what is true. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. So, he prepare yourself, friends, by constant reminders of the truth. And specifically, David appeals to two kinds of truth here. He appeals first to experience. Right? You are the stronghold. Or another way to translate that is the, you are the refuge. You are the hiding place of my life. Twice in David's life, he hides in caves to escape certain death. And so he took that, that experience and, and had it as a metaphor for who God is. He is my cave. He is my refuge in times of trouble. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, great British preacher, uh, has this, this uh, three-volume set called The Treasury of David. It's wonderful, these meditations on the Psalms. And he says that about this verse. He says this, Reader, this third verse about all the confidence is a logical inference from the first. Confidence is the child of experience. Have you ever been delivered out of great perils? And I love the way he says this. Then set up your ensign, wait at your watchfire, and let the enemy do his worst. Because from experience and the truth of that experience, we know God is faithful. He is here. He is with me. He is working. He has a plan. And it's why it's so crucial to own and use some kind of journal. Or for you men in here who don't like to say journal or diary, call it a moleskin. All right? <laughs> Sometimes we don't like those words. You're not going to remember all the wonders that God has accomplished in your life, great and small. You're just not going to if you do not record them. I heard a wise man once say that a short pencil is better than a long memory. So to end each day, just write out just a few. Here's what God did. Here's what He accomplished. Here's what He encouraged me with. So that you can look back and see it because you won't always remember. And if it's something big, I like to actually label it in my, in my moleskin as a spiritual marker. Something I can really look back on. It's a stone of remembrance in my life where God worked. I used to use a uh, mini, break it out here. I don't want to forget my passport this morning. All right. <laughs> I used to use this mini composition book. You know those big composition books that look like this, kind of marble looking? I used to use a, a mini ones that they sell uh, anywhere, most places. And I would stick it in the back of my pocket every day. Stick it in the back of my pocket because, and I'd always have a little pin with me. So that if God did something, or if he reminded me of something, or accomplished, a, you know, or, or, or fulfilled a prayer request, I could just jot it down. And it was great. If someone, if there was a teacher on campus, or preacher, and he preached something, I could take notes. Because it was always my theory, hint, hint, if someone is preaching from God's word, even if they are a terrible speaker, if they're preaching from God's word, why not have a pen and paper with you? There might be something that God wants to speak to you. Write it down. Let it catch your attention. I'm sure these are no more than a dollar. Maybe in Cayman they're three dollars. I don't know. All right, who knows? But I encourage you to practically do that. Second thing David does here is he gets God's perspective of truth, his word. The experience, because there's the experience, and then there's the interpretation of any experience. The things we 
experience around us. What is it? Why is it happening? What do we do in response? That's where God's Word comes in. It shows us why this is happening, what we are called to do, how we are called to respond. David says, the Lord is my light, in verse 1. It's the only time in the Old Testament the Lord is called light. But the association in the Old and New Testament of light is divine understanding. It's illumination. And so you get in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word, your interpretation of of the whole world and what is going on around me and in me, that gives me light and shows me how to respond. It shows me how to live. Does that make sense? Oftentimes we just go based on our experience, but we don't get God's truth in our hearts to make sense of those experiences and to show us what to do next. That's why it's so crucial to start with a few note cards and to write down Scripture to memorize. Tape it to your steering wheel. Or if you're a bad driver and really shouldn't tape it to your steering wheel, do bathroom mirror works well as well also. When you're brushing your teeth, you don't have anything else to do while you're brushing your teeth. Look at God's Word. Start this morning with 1 Peter 3, 15. We just read it. Or maybe this next verse in Psalm 27, Psalm 27, 4, a wonderful verse to memorize. Because in the moment of extremity, what's going to help is remembering the truth of experience as well as the truth of his word. And my worry, guys, in general, is that sermons that you like are the ones that make you feel good. Can I be so bold to challenge you on this? Sermons that make you feel good, but require little in return. And by the way, I'm preaching to myself when I say this as well. But I've spoken before about the importance of memorizing and committing God's Word to our hearts. To be prepared for these kinds of moments, temptation, extremity. But I wonder if you've started. Through His Word and by the always radical application of His Spirit, I'm urging you that God wants to build a better you. That he wants to prepare yourself for moments of extremity by recording his provisions and memorizing his truth. You've got to put in the preparation. April 20th, 1999. I was still in college and a moment of extremity happened 2,000 miles away which rocked me personally to the core and, and, and many others. The first victim... And I'll, I'll be sensitive to how I say this because I know there are kids here today. But the first victim of a mass... Um, hurting of people that day, mass shooting that day at Columbine High School was Rachel Scott. Rachel loved Jesus. So she reached out to Eric Harris and Dylan Kybold. These are kids that no one else messed with. And on this violently tragic spring day, these two boys armed responded to her reaching out to them. But they responded by testing her faith. Having first been hurt in the leg, they picked her up by her braided hair and asked her, do you believe in God? To which she looked up and responded, you know I do. And so they hurt her at point blank range. 
Rachel was a true martyr who in the moment of greatest extremity looked, confidently looked to her Savior. She looked someone else in the eye and displayed Christ. Friends, even something extreme as this, as tragic as this, as trying as this, wasn't without preparation. This week I looked back at some of her story and her kind of official website her parents have set up and listened to her journals, which her parents published, and you can actually see on her website. Listen to this. This is a 16-year-old girl. So there's, a, there's both a bit of 16-year-old in this, but a, a also an amazing faith. Dear God, I promise I will not go out drinking this Friday when I go out with Stephanie. This is hard. I want to so bad. I know I will always be faced with temptation, but because you love me and I want to follow and obey you, I will not fall into the core of it. Here what she's doing. She's reminding herself of truth. She loses her friends. She feels that way anyway. She pours out her heart and then remembers, Jesus, you call me friend. A couple more entries. Your word helps me even when I don't know it. So I started reading with John. And I have this journal where I write down verses that stand out in my mind or that help me share my faith. She began to commit God's word to her heart and mind. When lonely, she reminds herself how God has provided her friends through Breakthrough, which is her church's youth group. It's just remarkable going through these journals that read like psalms. Let me connect the dots here. Although there's uh, no comparison and degree of extremity between my very simple airline debacle and this tragedy for Rachel Scott, the common factor is this, placing confidence in Christ by relentless, behind-the-scenes preparation. That moment didn't just happen naturally for her. In some cases, that preparation leads to great trust that results in provision. God provides and we see Him glorified and others see Him glorified. And that's amazing. And it brings great glory to Him. In other cases, preparation leads to great trust that results in loss, pain, and sometimes even death. And that brings greater glory to God for all to see. Rachel Scott often liked to draw in her journals. And her final drawing is of a rose growing out of a columbine plant. And from above, her eyes are shedding tears upon it. And those tears turn to blood. And there is also a verse. She quotes John fifteen thirteen. Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this. And a man laid down his life for his friends. Rachel somehow knew she was being prepared to display the greater love of her Savior. Greater love during a time of extremity. And hundreds of documented persons have trusted their lives to Christ because of her story, because of her display which even at age 16 started through her preparation. Jesus knew this so well. He who endured not only suffering, but our just punishment for sin, 
so that he might call us friends for eternity. He was prepared for it. During moments of painful extremity, he reminded himself and others of what is true. So when the devil tempts him for 40 days, 40 nights in the desert, what does he say? It is written, devil. Three times he quotes Deuteronomy to Satan, as we see in Luke 3. When the Pharisees assault him, his response is to say, yeah, but you know neither scriptures nor the power of God. God's truth. When Peter busts out his sword to save Jesus when he's being taken captive, Jesus says, I can call on angels, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? You see what was on his mind and heart. Women following after Jesus during his compassion, he asks them, why do you weep? And then he quotes to them from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Maybe the greatest and most remarkable example is John 19.28, where it says, After this, Jesus, knowing now that all was finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. He's quoting Psalm 69. He was quite thirsty before then, as crucifixion combined with intense heat would cause. But to fulfill the scriptures, he says it. Do you see this? And then upon his death... Separated from his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22. Jesus prepared himself for extremity so that he be prepared to sacrifice for his friends. You and me. And through his example and his resurrection, he has given us the power to do the same. So for Christ's sake, let's prepare. Father, we thank you this morning for the example of Jesus and the power of his resurrection that can help us prepare. Father, moments of extremity, if they are not going on in our lives right now, they are coming. Lord, we don't expect them. We can't prepare for them as if they are an appointment on our calendar the next day. So Lord, give us the strength to prepare for them now by reminding ourselves of your truth. We want to become more like Christ. So help us remind ourselves of how you provided for us in the past. And arm ourselves with the truth of your word. Lord, help us do that. Help us walk away, taking the practical steps to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.